I'll tell you what. Um, you can go ahead and have your seats. I'm sorry. Joe, Joe David left you guys standing. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, though. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been a really difficult week for a number of individuals. Uh, but do you remember a few, a few Sundays ago I said, you know, it's, it's almost like when we come together as a family, while some people are, are on a high, some people are on a low. And that's, that's really where, you know, when, when we're together, we're able to, to strengthen each other, each other, we're able to encourage each other. Um, <laughs> I, I had the opportunity this morning to, to be in the room with, with William and his brother, uh, and it was funny. Uh, you... <laughs> You guys wouldn't know this, but standing up at the elevated point looking down, like you have no idea how much force William used to shove, <laughs> to shove his brother down in the water there. You know, I was like, ooh. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I cringed a little bit, but uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a lesson there. <laughs> Treat your siblings right because they might be the ones one day that has to baptize you and they need to bring you back up. <laughs> so keep that in mind. Uh, we, we also rejoice this morning with the Patlo family. Uh, we've, we've been praying a whole lot uh, for the situation back in Haiti. There is a saying we have back home, who feels it knows it. It's one thing to hear of these, these kind, you know, hear of these type of instances and not really have a connection, so to speak, with what's going on. But when you, you know people that are in the midst of that, when it's family, close friends, loved ones, uh, the concern takes on a different uh, type of degree or flavor to it. And so uh, this morning, uh, I think they came in on last night, but this morning I, I understand uh, that uh, Abigail and... Micaiah are here, uh, and so we, we rejoice with the Patlo family uh, for that, but uh, we still need to continue praying because James is yet to be here. I think the plan is he's going to attempt, um, you know, to, to leave, I think, on the 24th, you know, no later than the 24th. So we want to continue to keep that in prayer, and hopefully when that time comes, when that day, that, that day comes, uh, we could go into full rejoicing mode, all right? So we'll rejoice now with, with our rejoicing and with our joy, but we'll go into full rejoicing mode and we'll jump, dance, and skip even that much more uh, when James is safe and sound and, and in our arms and in our presence. Uh, and so I, I know Abigail is, is praying feverishly because of that. Let me just apologize uh, immediately on Wednesday um, I, I mistakenly, in my anxiety and in my e excitement, I mistakenly said that Sister Wanda had fallen down 14 flights. <laughs> Sister Wanda, I apologize. Uh, it wasn't 14 flights of stairs. It was 14, I believe, steps. So, uh, <laughs> my, my bad. <laughs> you know, we, we, we could laugh now. Uh, we, we, it's funny how that works, right? When we're going through the calamity, it's pain, it's crying. But, you know, after everything is said and done, and we look back in hindsight, we have life, we have breath, God is working, we could laugh at ourselves. Uh, I don't mean, you know, to be, to be crass or, or even mean, but, you know, we could laugh in hindsight. But I know in the moment, 
uh, she would have been scared and the family was scared as well. So we're so grateful that in the midst of all of these things that have been happening, um, broken arms, broken legs, vertebrae, uh, we're just so grateful that in the midst of all of this that's been happening, we could still put a smile on our face, we could still have joy in our hearts, and we could still have the wherewithal to say thank you, God. All right? For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. A time to cry and a time of laughter. A time to grieve and yet a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search, and a time to quit, a time to keep, yet a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be quiet, yet a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, and he concludes by saying a time of war, but there is also a time of peace. Solomon, in what most commentators and theologians assume is writing in the twilight of his life, shares some observable truths about life. He shares some insight that came not necessarily through divine revelation, but rather through the process of time-lived perspiration. That is to say, Solomon experienced life. He's spent time on the earth and involved himself in a lifetime experiment to see as he would put it, what life had to offer. One area of living after the next, he puts to the test life, and the result is always the same as he is forced to repeat the words over and over and over again, vanity of vanities. All, he says, is vanity. His conclusion, therefore, was that the only thing, listen to this church, that makes sense, the only thing that's worth really going after and pursuing, the only thing that has or yields dividends in this life and in the life that is to come was fearing God and keeping his commandments. In the lead up to his conclusion, Of the matter in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number 13, he identifies some observable cycles 
of life. These are things that he identifies and are things that those who have spent enough time on the earth would agree with as being true only because we have witnessed some or all of these things for our very own selves. These times and these seasons, Solomon would conclude, were inevitable. This word inevitable is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as meaning certain to happen. It is unavoidable. It is inescapable. It is fated to happen. It is assured. It's a sure thing, and it is unpreventable. If you go a little further, as you read from some of the dictionaries, whether online or handheld, you would encounter words or synonyms attached to the meaning that sounds something like this. It is predestined. It is preordained. It is necessary. When we talk about something being inevitable, it means that it is mandatory, it is compulsory, and it is required. I want us to keep this in mind as we come to our text in the book of Luke chapter number 22. In Luke chapter number 22, verses number 31 and 32, Jesus would make a declaration. He would make a statement of inevitability to the apostle that was Peter. In verse number 31, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you or demanded of you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, he says, strengthen your brethren. So in the text and in the lead up to our specific text, Luke addresses in his writing several inevitabilities that Jesus himself would have spoken concerning. If you go back into Luke chapter 17 and we, and we peruse and we walk our way through the various chapters from at least chapter 17 on to chapter number 22, we would encounter in Luke chapter 17 verses 1 and 2, Jesus would make the statement or the declaration that it is inevitable that times of stumbling would come. If you read the text pretty carefully, it would sound like this. It is impossible that offenses should come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It would be better for him uh, if a millstone were hung around his neck and him thrown into the sea that he should offend one of these little ones. But I want us to see in verse number three, he starts off or he continues the exhortation there by uttering the words, take heed to yourselves. That is to say, be on your guard. As you continue in Luke chapter number 17, Luke continues to record some inevitable things that Jesus would have spoken concerning uh, the kingdom and, and things that would happen in their day and even in their time. So as you move on, he talks in chapter 17, verses 20 through, through 36, about the coming kingdom. 
Then when you make your way into chapter number 18, verses 1 through verse number 8, he, he talks about the inevitability of an answered prayer as he speaks and he gives this analogy or this illustration, this parable of a widow and an unjust judge. And he's trying to help these disciples to understand that it is inevitable that your prayer would be answered if you persist and you are resilient in it. As you make your way further into chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, he records here for the very first time, Luke records for the third time, that Jesus is talking about the inevitability of his passion, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Luke is careful to go on to mention in chapter 19, verses 35, following when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, what would consider to be the beginning of Passion Week, the week in the lead up to him going to the cross. He would make the statement when the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders tried to silence the crowd, he would make the statement that even if the crowd shuts up, these stones would sing my praises. In other words, Jesus wants them to know that praise is inevitable. No matter how hard the devil tries, no matter what life throws at us, praise, praising God is inevitable. Then as you make your way into chapter number 21 from about verse number 10 and following, he, he gives again some more declarations of some inevitable things, some, some certain things, some things that is unavoidable and unpreventable as he talks, number one, about the destruction of Jerusalem, but also he talks about his second coming. And then finally, as we make our way into the text, Luke records the inevitability of the sifting process for the child of God. The idea of sifting is an interesting one because first, we have to recognize and appreciate the imagery of sifting so we can appreciate and understand the implication of sifting. In other words, if we could understand and appreciate what sifting in a physical sense looks like, if, if we could appreciate what sifting was meant to do in a physical way, then we are able now to understand the spiritual implication and application of the sifting process. So what is sifting? After wheat has been harvested, one of the steps in preparing it for use, I'm asking you just to stay with me for a bit, one of the steps in preparing it for use is to sift or to thresh it. This is done to release the inedible shaft from the usable edible grain. That's the purpose of the sifting. It's to get the stuff that you don't need away from the stuff that you do. To get the stuff that is worth less from the consumer out of the thing that is, has worth to the consumer. And so for you and me, the, the sifting process or the threshing process is, is so vital to, to the, to, to, for, for, for our eating because we don't want to eat the shaft. What we really want to get to is the, is the grain. And so sifting is that process that, that prepares uh, this, this particular wheat for 
consumption and for human usage. The sieve was an instrument used to remove unwanted materials from either sand or grain. Pebbles or straws remained in the sieve while the sand or the grain would have passed through. So as we think about this particular imagery, what is it about this sifting imagery helps us as we look at our text, helps us to recognize the importance and the lesson and the message of what Jesus would have said to his disciples and ultimately to Peter. Come with me again to Luke chapter 22, verses number 31. In Luke chapter 22, verse number 31 in our text, Jesus would utter the words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission or desired to sift you as wheat. But I want us to recognize that the you there that Jesus uses is not a you that's pointed at this particular point in the conversation to specifically Peter. The you that's used there is a more, more or less, and I know Miss Sue would, would appreciate me for doing this, it's a y'all type of, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Been here since 2017, at least in the U.S., and I've never said y'all. Miss <laughs> Sue, I've, I've, I've been at Antioch for a month and a half, and Miss Sue has rubbed off. So the you there is not you specifically alone, Peter, even though Peter is implied in the you, but the you is you all. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to appreciate this Peter. And there's a reason why he is, he is highlighting Peter here for a minute, because he's going to tell Peter something in the very next few verses that Peter isn't going to understand or appreciate, but Jesus knows, right? And so he tells Peter, Peter, he calls him close. Simon, Simon, come, come, come. The disciples are all around, but he, he says to him, Simon, Simon, you come. Behold, behold, behold. The devil has demanded that he has you all so that he could sift you like wheat. But I. Because this falls under the category of inevitable things, it really isn't a matter of if the sifting happens, but it's more a matter of when does the sifting take place. So as Luke sets up these inevitable things, and we could go even further back from chapter 17, but I'm hoping these seven things that I've outlined so far of inevitable things, inevitable instances, I'm, I'm hoping it would be sufficient enough to recognize that by now when Jesus is saying it is inevitable that you and I as his followers will go through a sifting process, I hope you, you recognize it's not a matter of if, but it's always a matter of when is this sifting really going to take place. Thus it stands to reason that the purpose behind the sifting is one that is meant to bring ruin and not righteousness because of the one demanding the sifting action. Satan's motives and intentions are completely opposite to God's. 
This is summed up, for example, in in Joseph's conclusion to his brothers, Genesis chapter number 50 and verse number 20. But as for you, you fought it evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's echoed also in the letters, uh, the letter of Paul as he writes to the brethren at Rome when he writes and he pens verse number 28 of chapter number 8 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What you are going through, it may not feel good. What you are going through, it may not look good. What you are going through may not feel like there is an escape. It feels terrible. It's, it's a dark night, but God has the ability to take what we're going through and use it, not just for his good, but for our good. So it doesn't feel good right now. I I don't want to be here right now. I don't want to be in this place right now, this mental space, this emotional position. I don't want to be here. It's too painful. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And God has the ability to take that pain, to take that suffering, to take that frustration. Ultimately, he's going to work it for his good, but he's going to have the ability as well to work it for your and my good as well. But all all it takes at times is the ability to stand up in the midst of the pain. And as you stand up in the midst of the pain, you would realize as you look back into the annals of your life, you would see the places and you would see the footprints. You will see the handprint. You will see the thumbprint of every single time God had a hand. He had a finger. He had a foot. Every single time God turned things around, you could look back in the annals of your life and say, there was God. There was God. There was God. I didn't know I was going to make it when I got my divorce, but there was God. 15 years, 5 years, 10 years removed, we could look back. If we stand firm in the midst of the madness, if we stand firm in the midst of the sifting, if we stand firm, we could look back and say, there was God. Consider what Jesus says in the book of John chapter number 10. I have to stick to my notes because if I don't stick to my notes... You guys know what will happen. In John 10, 10. That sounds like an elder. In John chapter 10, let me just get through this. In John chapter 10... Jesus utters these words. The thief, as if we didn't know, the thief only comes for specific reasons. He comes to steal. She comes, because they are female thieves, if you don't know as well. They come to steal. They come to kill. And they come to destroy. I have yet to find or hear about a thief, unless we're talking about Robin Hood. I have yet to find or hear about a thief that broke in to somebody's house and left a 75-inch flat screen 4K television. 
I've yet to hear about a thief that, that breaks into somebody's house and leaves, leaves a, a jewelry box full of gold and silver and a wad or wads of money. I, I've yet to hear about somebody holding somebody at gun or knife point or holding somebody for ransom and saying, if, 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 if you have family, let them call me and I will give you guys five million dollars. If you know somebody like that, let me know. I'll gladly have them. I'll gladly have them break into my house. Who can do with a 75-inch flat-screen 4K TV? <laughs> Who can do with a jewelry box full of gold, silver, and wads of money? Who can do with, with, with $5 million? <laughs> Apparently some people can, but who can't? I'm sure we could use $5 million into our accounts, right? But the purpose of the thief is not productive, the purpose of the thief is destructive. So Jesus says the thief comes only for the purpose of to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But he says, I am come that they might have life, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Steal what preacher? Steal the word from your heart. Kill what preacher? He wants, the thief comes to, to kill your joy. Destroy what Morgan, the thief is coming to destroy your hope. So when you think about the devil as being the ultimate thief, he wants to kill or, or steal the word from your heart. He wants to kill the joy that you have. He wants to destroy the hope that you hold on to. But God says, I am come that you might have life. The life that Jesus offers is not just in terms of quantity. Who here wouldn't want to live in a healthy way until they are 115? I don't mind living long on the earth. I could be a Methuselah, granted that I have the strength of Caleb. I don't mind living to be a nice, ripe old age. Let me be in my hundreds if that's, that's what's needful. But allow me to do things on my own. Don't let it be that when I'm 120 years old that I don't have the faculty of my mind. Don't let it be that if I'm, I'm, I'm silver and gray that I can't move from place to place on my own. Who doesn't want to have long life? But we want to have long life as far as time. But we also, we also make, 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 make the, the understanding that it's not just about how much time we have, but it's the quality of the life. So Jesus says, I didn't just come to, to add years on the calendar for you. I have come to give you a quality and a standard of life that's next to none. So for the Christian, when we make the statement that being a Christian is the best life that you could live, that's no joke. Because Jesus come to give us an abundant life. And even if it's a short life, it's not the quantity, it's the quality. So he says, I have come with a different purpose. The thief comes to steal. The thief comes to kill. The thief comes to destroy. But I am come. This is the difference between the devil and me. This is the difference between the devil and God. He wants your destruction, but I want to offer you productivity. Under normal sifting practice, the attempt is made, check this, to strain out that which is of no use. But for Satan, it's about getting rid of that which is of use. Under normal circumstances, the sifting is done to get the best out of the product. 
But for Satan, it's all about revealing and reveling in the things that make the product inferior. In other words, Satan isn't doing this shifting to get the best out of us. No, no, no. He is doing it to draw out the worst and have you and me live in that state for as long as we possibly can. The hope for him is that many of us will become either indifferent or that state, worst case scenario, becomes permanent. Have you ever heard about the people that make this statement, well, this is just who I am. I can't change because this is me. That's a person who has become indifferent. You're trying to talk to somebody about their way of living, the way that they think, the way that they operate, the, the things that they engage in, and, and they tell you, well, no, 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 you, you know, that's, that's who I am. That's, that's somebody who has become indifferent. As a believer in God, we have to understand and we have to appreciate, we have to know that we serve a God that is able to bring change to anybody at any given point or stage in his or her life. So the person that's susceptible to change is not just the young tree. I know we say we make this statement, you know, bend the tree while it's young. And any people who understand that analogy, any, any planters in the house, any green thumbs in the house, we say you need to bend the tree when it's young because when it's old, it's hard to bend. There is some truth to that. But from a spiritual perspective, we need to understand we serve a God that has the ability to take an old tree and bend it and make it straight. So for us as Christians, we have to understand, we, we have to believe there, there's no if, there's no but. We have to be people of belief that God could take anybody and change them. So for a Christian to make the statement, this is who I am. For a Christian to take the position that I cannot change. That's a sad place for a Christian to be. It's a dangerous place for anybody to be to say that I cannot change. Cannot is not in the vocabulary of God. So sifting, as we think about the sifting process, sifting of wheat, if you could personalize wheat, if you could put emotion to wheat, if you want to view yourself as, is really what I'm getting at as the wheat, I want us to appreciate this imagery of sifting. Sifting is never easy on the wheat. If wheat had feelings, sifting would absolutely hurt. Going somewhere with this, the very imagery of sifting is a violent one. I, I, I'm sorry, back home we have these things called cookie brooms. And maybe, I, I don't want to rip up anybody's plan. Can't do it. But if I follow the imagery of the sifting, what happens in the sifting? We're trying to get to the wheat. But if you think about what's taking place, it's violent. Because you have a man or a woman that, that has these, these, these stalks in their hand. And they lift their hands up as strong and as high as they could. And they would slam and bash that wheat against a firm or a flat foundation. And so they would slam the wheat down. They go again and they slam the wheat down. And they go again and they slam the wheat down. You, you, you can't 
thresh or you can't sift, you can't get that out unless you put some effort into it. So the threshing process is, is a violent one. It, if wheat had feelings, it, it would be like bashing your head against a rock over and over and over and over and over again. If you weren't being bashed, you were being hit with a rod, or you were, you were being abused, you were being beaten, you were being hit, just, 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 just lashed on every side. And so the imagery I want us to see is that this, this sifting or this threshing, there's a certain violence to it. Since sifting is inevitable, The question is, how can we survive it? If sifting is so violent, how do we survive? I want to leave you with these three points, and the message will be yours. As you think about what it takes to survive our inevitable sifting process, Jesus says, number one, we need to stay sharp-eyed. In other words, he tells us we need to be on our guard constantly. If you missed it, in Luke chapter 17 and verse number three, he tells them, be on your guard. In chapter 21, verses number 34, he, he again re-emphasizes and warns them against some impending things, but he tells them, he encourages them to be on your guard. Being on your guard means that you need to stay alert. It means that you need to stay attentive, be, be watchful, stay on your toes is, is what the fighter or the boxer would say. You have to be alert. Never, he says, let your guard down. Secondly, not only does he say we need to stay sharp-eyed or be on our guard, he says we need to stay sober. The idea of being sober is characterized by uh, self-control or seriousness, a sound and moral judgment. It's the state of being controlled not by the flesh, even though when you hear self-control, you think you are the one that's in control. But the idea of being self-controlled in a true sense is being controlled or led by the spirit to the degree that you are able to deny flesh. So self-control, don't, don't pat yourself on the back when it is you, you've been an alcoholic for so long and you decide to stay away from the bottle. No, what's really holding you back is the spirit because you know to get drunk... <laughs> And I need to say drunk now. To get drunk is the sin. And so because I understand the will and the word of God, what's keeping me is the spirit and not necessarily the flesh. You guys with me? And so self-control is a control of self that's not generated by the flesh because the flesh can't control the flesh. If the flesh had its way, then we would have no control. So self-control is something that's orchestrated. It's something that's initiated. It's something that's, 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 that's done by the Spirit or being subject to the Spirit. The Bible talks that bishops, elders need to have or be sober-minded. 
First Timothy chapter number three, verse number two. Bishops and deacons' wives need to be sober-minded. First Timothy three, verse number eleven. Old men need to be sober. Titus chapter two and verse number two. Old and young women need to be sober. Titus two, three and four. Young men need to be sober. I hope you catch it. Everybody, according to Scripture, needs to be sober-minded. Nobody gets a pass because of their age. And here's why I say that. Because sometimes we could be cruel when we get old and think we have a past because we are older than everybody else. Well, I could say this because I'm older. So he says, be sober, old folks. Be sober, young folks. Be sober, men. Be sober, elders. Be so he says, be sober. That's one of the things that you have to do to survive your sifting process. First Peter chapter 5, Peter encourages the brethren, be of sober spirit, be on the alert because your adversary, the devil, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Soberness or a sober mind is absolutely essential. And number three, not only do we need to stay sharp-eyed, not only do we need to stay sober, but Jesus says we need to stay in the service. Watch this. As he continues his dialogue with Peter, he says, Peter, Simon, Simon has desired to sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Only that when you have been converted, now he points his attention now to Peter. He says, now that when you are converted or when you return to me, I need for you to strengthen the brethren. There's a fundamental difference between Peter denying Jesus and Judas betraying the Lord. Both were in a situation of denial. Both were in a situation of, uh, you, you know, leaving God. But at the end of the day, one person decided to take their own life while the other person decided to return to the Lord. And so there is a sense in which when you think about conversion, there, there is a sense where even as followers of God, we find ourselves falling prey to the wiles of the devil. We find ourselves not living up to the standard. And so God says through Peter and the life that Peter lives, here is what, even as an avid follower of me, you may falter and you may fail. You don't have to go the route of Judas where the guilt overcomes you and you can't be around the brethren. The guilt overcomes you and you can't pray anymore. The guilt overcomes you so you don't think you're worthy to even read the word. He says, no, no, no. Don't go down the route of, 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 of Judas. Take the path of Peter. So sometimes we have discrepancies in our service. Sometimes we have discrepancies in our lives. Sometimes we have discrepancies and our determination because of our guilt is to give up on faith, give up on mission, give up on ministry, give up on life. But Jesus says, if you want to survive your sifting process, I need for you, after you have recognized your flaw, after you have recognized your weakness, after you have recognized your wrong, you need to return to me and stay in service. So there is no need for the child of God to tuck tail and run. There is no need for the child of God to throw in the towel. There is no need for the child of God to give up on faith. He says, I need for you, in order for you to make it out on the other side of the sifting, you need to find yourself busy in the work. 
Church hurt is the worst hurt you could encounter sometimes. You could withstand what people say about you on the job. You could withstand what people do to you out in the world, but sometimes the worst hurt you could encounter as a human being is church hurt. When the brother who you worship with says something false about you and the sister that, you, that sits next to you, they, they, they're, they're trying to do or say things about you, that stuff hurts. And what happens sometimes when you have church hurt is people distance themselves, not necessarily from the church, but they distance themselves from God. But scripture wants us to rest assured that in order for us to make it through our sifting process and survive, we need to stay in service. So as I conclude, I want to share this thought with us, and the message would be ours. In order to survive the sifting process, we need to, one, stay sharp. Say, stay sharp. That's be aware of our surroundings. Number two, we need to stay sober. Stay, say, stay sober. That's to be aware of self. But number three says we need to stay in service of the kingdom. Stay, say, stay in service. That's your spiritual awareness. So as I conclude, I want us to see this and appreciate this. I'm done. The only thing that's keeping us, and this is where you could shout, you could scream, you could say amen if this, if this hits you right. The only thing that's keeping us in our sifting is a prayer. Sometimes you can't pray for yourself. Or you have some prayer warriors praying for you. Sometimes you don't know what to pray for. But somebody somewhere is praying for you. And if nobody here or on the face of the earth is praying for you, I am assured of my Lord praying a prayer for me that my faith doesn't fail. Only that when I am converted, I'll strengthen the brethren. Let's all stand. I'm done. Look to the person next to you. And I want you to do this. Do this with me. Look to the person next to you and say, survive. Come on, survive Survive. your sifting. Look to the person next to you and say, survive Survive. your sifting. Look to the person behind you now, because you, you, you may not have wanted to turn to that person. Look to the person behind you and say, survive. Thank you.